What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is going to be 10 things I used to believe. And I think that, you know, if you're trying to pursue greater knowledge in a field, then you should probably be in a position where every, I don't know, whatever, every certain amount of time, whether it's a year or two years or every six months or whatever, you're looking back at things you used to say or do, or for me personally, it's like old content or old training videos and, and be like, wow, if I'd only known what I knew then, or wow, that was pretty fucking dumb, or can't believe I thought that, or can't believe I did that. And that's only normal. And it's nothing to feel bad about. There are things on here that are, that I'm going to tell you that I used to believe that are, man, really rudimentary, but in the pursuit of greater knowledge, you're going to go through periods of, you know, believing some stuff that you will one day think is dumb, let's say. Um, and if you guys haven't listened to my uh, story on my podcast about my experience with keto, you know that that's something that was like very, very real for me. Um, and it's something I'm going to go over a little bit today, but that's something that I absolutely used, absolutely used to believe like really in deep for a short period of time in my life. And so, um, yeah, let's, let's just jump into it. Stop rambling, Jordan. All right. Number one is that meal plans, or I used to believe that meal plans really helped people, that they were the way to go. And that's to no fault of anyone. That's just when I started as a personal trainer, the gym that I was working at was like entirely meal plan based. We were just, I mean, it's probably, it was probably illegal what was going on. Like, because only really, I think dietitians are allowed to prescribe. And obviously, you know, we weren't prescribing. It was like, oh, we suggest that you eat exactly this, exactly this time and only these foods. Um, and so I did a lot of giving people meal plans, a lot, years. The first several years of my career was just giving people meal plans and not even personalized meal plans. Big, small, tall, short, man, woman. Well, I guess man man and woman had different templates, but it's, it was the same thing. You didn't come in with a certain uh, body composition and workout history and get a different diet. That was it. You got the same diet. Everyone got the same diet. And I don't even want to mention how many how low calories it was. It was insane. It was it was borderline malpractice, right? Um, and I, I suppose that I and I don't want to ramble. I don't want to drag these on too long. I do want to get through ten of them. But the first client I ever had that I put on this meal plan, she followed it religiously. She lost like eighty pounds. It was I mean I watched it before my eyes. It was unbelievable pounds per week consistently every single week, massive transformation. She had a before and after picture that made me so much money. I got so many clients off of her before and after photo. And I started doing exactly with those people what I was doing with her and people were not having that sort of success. And I didn't really understand why it was more of like, I was just thinking that people just needed to, you know, suck the fuck up and do it and do what she did. But I wasn't realizing obviously the compl complex nature of actually making, you know, uh, behavioral changes to accomplish fat loss. I just was giving somebody a diet to follow exactly. And then not wondering why they couldn't sustain it forever, you know? And eventually that first client of mine who had lost all that weight, she moved away and you know, my business went on and I still used her before and after picture and told people about her and, and, and used it as a, as a, an example of what could happen for other people. And you know, the same thing kept happening. And she reached out to me maybe a year after she had moved away and she had gained all the way back maybe and then some, and was asking me for a copy of the meal plan. And I sent it to her. And I just thought to myself, like, I hadn't taught her anything. Like, I was massively disappointed. I didn't know if I was disappointed in her or me. But eventually it clicked where I was like, you didn't fucking teach her anything. How did you, she didn't learn to do anything. She maybe learned uh, some level of discipline, or maybe she had that in her already. But like, she didn't learn anything about, quote, how to fish, you know, right? I just had, I had just given her a fish. And so this idea of giving people meal plans while 
frankly, it's you know, flat out illegal to give a prescriptive meal plan unless you're a registered dietitian. There are obviously, you know, semantic loopholes there, but I believe that this was really helping people for a while, that this was the way. Just tell people exactly what to eat. I didn't even know how many calories it was for a while until I figured out how to like work that out. I was like 19. Like, um, and so I really believed that this was the way to help people. And, I, and frankly, I believed it because I didn't, I had no experience doing anything else and I had never done anything else myself. I didn't know anything about macros or energy balance. I just thought that this was what people did. They followed the meal plan, do exactly this, you'll lose weight. And so what I will say is two, two small caveats to that. One is that what I do now, obviously a decade later, um, if there's any room for a meal plan in my current like state of mind, I would say it's helping people make their own meal plan as a, as a form of just like a practice exercise, like an, as an example, as like a mock perfect day. So if I have a client who's new to tracking, what I'll do is I'll help them build a sample meal plan that they can maybe follow flexibly here and there, but even just going through the motions of building a meal plan for yourself. So I do think this is a helpful exercise. If you're somebody who's starting out and you set your calories, build yourself a realistic meal plan that you could follow. I don't know, some of the time, but even just going through the exercise of tracking stuff, of looking it up in the app, of thinking about what types of foods you like to eat, it's going to be a helpful exercise. And so that can be helpful if you help people and you frame it as practice or as an example, as a mock day, as something to work off of. But you know, kind of where it falls flat and where it is often most used is in, as this like super rigid, you have to follow this uh, or else, you know, not teaching people how to make deviations, not teaching them about energy balance. And the worst part is if I look back at what I was doing, I was giving people like really low calorie meal plans and then giving them a, a, a cheat day. And so it really was just like, you can compa- compound those two things into like, okay, you haven't learned anything about nutrition. And on top of that, I've taught you that you know, I've given you some form of like disordered eating mentality. And so it's not always paired together, but that was my experience and it wasn't a good one. Somebody that I respect in the industry, a guy named Jackson Pios has talked about his usage of meal plans and he's a a very, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about him really quickly and then we're going to move on just because he's somebody who's, uh, you know, has a pretty good head on his shoulders and still thinks that meal plans are pretty good. And his, he would say that his usage would be because when you have a meal plan and you're eating the same thing every day, you he gets like a very high consistency or he would say that you have a very high consistency in terms of how you feel, how you perform, your digestion, how foods make you feel. And I, I agree with that. But this is for somebody who's like extremely elite. We're talking about competitors who, you know, don't care about not going out and have a different level of you know value hierarchy that are willing to make certain trade-offs and not have social lives and stuff like that. And if you're highly valuing the consistency of digestion and how you perform over having a social life and, you know, maybe learning more about how nutrition works, then, okay, the, the, the meal plan might be great for you. But I think that goes for like 0.01. And I think for Jackson and for a lot of his clients, I think that that works pretty well. But I'd say for the majority of people that I work with, probably listening to this podcast, the only place for a quote unquote meal plan might be as a practice exercise for somebody who's maybe never tracked before or might not know what 1800 calories looks like, right? What does 150 grams of protein per day look like? Who needs, you know, someone who needs practice tracking something in the app, let's say. Cool. Moving on. They probably all, all won't be that long, but moving on. Number two, training six or seven days a week was the way to go. More is better. I literally, for the first, like, I don't know, four, four or five years of training, I did push-pull legs on rotation with the only time I would take a rest day is if I was, like, in college and, like, too hungover to work out. Like, push-pull legs, push-pull legs, push-pull legs, push-pull legs, push-pull legs, fucking ad nauseum with no rest days. The only time I would take one if I was maybe so obliterated sore or if I was like hungover or something like 
just an assumption that more is better, more is better, more is better. And I would always be sore and I would always have some joint pain. I remember in my early 20s, just having way more like chronic elbow pain, knee pain, shoulder pain. And I just thought it was like a normal thing of like, oh, I'll just work through it and it'll be fine. Like, it's not normal. Like, and only experiencing that now with like more intelligent, intelligently structured programming with rest days and deloads and that that's not normal. You shouldn't always be carrying around like knocks and like little niggles and pains. Like now, sometimes it's okay. When I say it's okay, sometimes I mean, it's not like cause for alarm. You're not doing something wrong. If you have a little elbow pain, like, okay, you know, but it shouldn't be something where you're chronically like fucked up all the time and you have all these pains everywhere. Like I would take a look at your recovery to work ratio, right? Um, and other times I'd just go through periods of, of going through the motions and not working hard, right? So I would be going through times where I was working super hard, you know, 20 days in a row of training, whatever I would like wear it as a badge, like a badge of honor. Or I'd go through periods of just going through the motions because I was in pain. I had joint pain. I, I didn't have a high motivation to work out. And so I think that was my body saying, okay, you can go hard. You can do 18 days in a row, but eventually we're going to catch up with you and say, take some time off, right? I always say, if you work hard and you don't take deloads, eventually the deload takes you in the form of like an injury or sickness or just a super low motivation to train. And I actually remember feeling those ways where I was like having a little bit of an injury and I'd take five days off. Like it was because my body was forcing me to deload because I was hitting that point where I should have taken a step back and I didn't voluntarily. And eventually your body takes it anyway. And what I'll say is if you're training hard enough, you're going to need rest days. Like that's it. I had somebody arguing me with me in the comments like, oh, I work out every day. And it's like, yeah, you haven't died yet. And if you are working hard enough to make gains, you're going to need rest days. And the only context I could see, you know, if you're, do- and I think there's a lot of things. If you're training hard enough in your sets, let's take it from a very like small and, and, and zoom out. If you're working hard in your set, you're gonna need rest between sets. So everyone out there who doesn't rest long between sets, it's probably because you're not working hard enough in your set. Then if you're working hard enough in your sessions, you're gonna need rest days. And people who say they don't need rest days, my counter to you is you're not training hard enough in your session. And if you're training hard enough week to week, then eventually you're gonna need a deload. And people who say they don't need a deload, again, I would circle back and say, you're just not training hard enough. and, or or you are training hard enough and the deload will take you eventually in form of an injury or sickness or low motivation to train. And you just take the week off or or you already take deloads without even knowing it. A long weekend, a vacation, and you're like, oh, I never deload. But like every fifth weekend, you miss two workouts to go up to Saratoga with the boys. Like that's a deload. Um, I'd say the only context I could see is if you're saying I train six or seven days a week, but three of those days are hypertrophy, two of those days are you know uh, cardiovascular work, more metabolic work. And so if you're doing different stimulus, different stimuli um, across six or seven days, okay, maybe for sure. Or if you're on like a pretty advanced low per session volume slash high frequency protocol, which again, I would say is pretty advanced and not for 99% of people, myself included, or anybody listening to this most likely. Number three. Things, what is this? Things I used to believe, number three, is I didn't need a training log. I would just come in and work hard. And this goes for me and my clients in my early years. Like I would personally, for myself, I would literally just go in. It was push-pull legs, right? I was like, oh, push. I'm doing chest, shoulders, triceps, something like that. And I would just make shit up. And what happens is it works because you're a newbie and everything works. And so you build this positive uh, uh, like reinforcement around what you're doing because you know, what you're doing gets positive reinforced because it's working. And so I was like, oh, I just go in here and I work hard and I pick exercises I like and I take things kind of close to failure. And, you know, I, I probably didn't even think that far ahead. I just would go in and do things I liked and figured it had to be hard. 
And so I started to do that with all my clients. Like it was, it was honestly, I look back again, this goes back to the first one of, or, or just like the initial intro of like, if you don't look back and think what you were used to do is dumb, like you're probably not growing. It's pathetic. My clients would come in and I would just run them through a random workout. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know, as long as you work hard. And the truth is a lot of them were very new to training. And so I got more positive, you know, reinforcement that this works of this idea of just do the, what the fuck ever you want. As long as you get close to failure, it'll be fine. Because a lot of my clients were very new to training, maybe a little bit overweight, very highly uh, um, ripe for recomp, and they saw results. Now, they obviously didn't see as good of results as if we were tracking stuff, as if we had built a program and we had progressive overload and we were tracking tracking things, and obviously I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but I didn't need a training log for myself because I just went in and did whatever, and it kind of worked because I was brand new to training. And then I did that with a bunch of other people and realized it took a long time for me to realize that, like, just because you'll get results doing something, one, those results might not last as long as they would have if you're doing, like, you can get them longer if you're doing things in a maybe a more intelligent way. And you might be able to get or probably will get better results over the same time period if you're doing something better. So some people are like, oh, you know, I'm training six or seven days a week and I'm not tracking anything and I'm making gains. It's like, okay, one, you maybe could make better gains in the same time, or two, the gains you are making might end up petering out and you will eventually have to add some intelligent structure to your training, AKA start fucking tracking stuff. Um, cool. So yeah, I, I used to believe I didn't need a training lock. I don't think I had a structured program for the first six years of, of training. Would literally just go in and I had a general knowledge of what exercises worked, what muscles, and push-pull legs sounded relatively coherent and I would just go in and work hard. and. It worked for a while until it didn't. And if you're somebody out there who's not seeing the kind of results that you want or haven't been seeing the kind of results that you want for a long time like, and you're not tracking your workouts, like this is a pretty good sign that that's something you should be doing. Number four, I used to believe that faster dieting would damage your metabolism, would permanently damage your metabolism. Now, what I will say is if you are interested in this topic, there's an episode that I did with Alan Aragon where we talk about metabolic adaptation and metabolic damage, uh, quote unquote, in, a, in, in great detail. And so I'll link that in the, in the description. Go and check that out if you're interested in this topic a little bit more. Now, the truth is with faster dieting, the biggest downside is because you, you know, because of faster dieting, when we're talking about a large, a more aggressive deficit, the trade-offs that you're going to have to make to maintain that are going to make your life not to resemble maintenance at all, right? You're going to, let's say you caught a thousand calories. That means that, you, you know, what you have to do to be adherent to that isn't going to look a lot like maintenance. So you're, transition to maintenance is going to be harder because what you're doing doesn't really resemble maintenance. And faster dieting, the biggest downside is that we we struggle to transition from that back to maintenance. It is not something inherently bad where you're breaking your metabolism, where you're permanently damaging your metabolism, where you're fucking up your hormones. I think people uh, misunderstand this. Like if you lose 100 pounds and you do it slow, or you lose 100 pounds, and, or whatever, let's say 40 pounds, and you do it slow, or 40 pounds, and you do it fast, the amount of metabolic adaptation that you will see, which is a temporary downregulation in metabolism, mostly through a reduction in your subconscious NEAT, will be the same, because the biggest factor in metabolic adaptation is the actual weight that you lose. Not the, if somebody loses 40 pounds over 40 weeks, someone loses 40 pounds over 20 weeks, that person will not see a significant, more significant reduction in their metabolism. It will be the same. It will be more or less exactly the same. Obviously, there's gonna be personal variance. And so the amount of weight that you lose, the percentage of your body weight that you lose is the biggest indicate, uh, the biggest factor that goes into how much metabolic adaptation you will see. And it's not permanent. And so going back to eating more and getting your body back to a, like a hormonally and a metabolically safe place will see NEAT come back up. 
100%. Now, the, the analogy I'll, I'll give for this is that like faster dieting is like is like driving faster. If you look at the research, you know, and you look at the percentage of people that crash, the, the percent of, of accidents will go up per mile per hour. The faster you drive, the more likely you are to crash. That's it. But that doesn't mean that that you should never and nobody should ever drive fast. Just because there's a correlation between, you know, faster driving and accidents, let's say, does not mean that nobody should drive fast, right? Like you probably need more experience, practice, and skill to drive faster. You might be somebody who, who more highly values, who, who sees that risk of high, more highly crashing, but the reward of getting there faster and with the proper amount of experience, practice, and skill, you can do that, right? And so the biggest downside of faster dieting is that, yeah, you, you uh, is that the transition to maintenance, which I, I don't want to gloss over. That is a very, very, very extremely important part of this, you know, of weight loss and weight maintenance. That transition becomes harder because what you're doing doesn't resemble what your life is going to look like at maintenance. So you're not really practicing a lot of those same habits. You have more strict trade-offs, a more rigid protocol. And for a lot of people, they don't have the experience, practice, skill, relationship with food, relationship with exercise, the know-how, the knowledge, like maybe even the uh, the lifestyle, the environment to really adhere to that and properly transition back to maintenance. But there is nothing inherently damaging to your metabolism by dieting faster. It's not like dieting slow. It's not like everybody on planet Earth should diet slow because if you diet fast, you're going to you're going to damage your, your metabolism. People who say that everybody should diet slow, honestly, I think they're trying to do good, but it's intellectually lazy. Not everybody should diet slow. There are going to be people who are going to be better off rationalizing be a little being a little bit more uncomfortable for a little bit more rate of progress. Like there are going to be people who quit because they're not seeing the return on their investment. And if they had gone a little bit lower in calories, maybe they'd be a little bit more uncomfortable, but the return in terms of visible changes, you know, the scale measurements, photos would be worth it to them. It's about, is this trade-off worth it to me? Some people, a lot of people are going to be, if we look at the spectrum of like extremely slow to extremely fast. Yeah. Most people I'd say are probably better off staying away from the extremely fast. Most people, but like race car drivers, they, they're okay. They want to go 200 miles around the track, 200 miles an hour. They can. They have the experience, the practice, and the skill. Driving 200 miles an hour for them is going to be more worth it. Getting there faster might be more worth it to them. And so I do think that a lot of people are going to be better off going on the slower end of the spectrum, but not because there's something inherently damaging about faster dieting, but because it's going to more likely uh, take habits and behavior and lifestyle that will more represent what life will be like at maintenance, which gives you a good chance to practice those while not being that uncomfortable, right? Most people's skills and lifestyle and experience and environment like don't lend themselves really well to adherence to a more aggressive diet. But that doesn't mean it's bad because it's gonna damage your metabolism. Again, if you're interested in that, listen, metabolic adaptation is real. It's not permanent. There is no such thing as, there's no such thing as meaningful metabolic damage. And if somebody wants to pull up the biggest loser study, go listen to the Alan Aragon episode. He gives a really nice breakdown of the downsides of those studies. And even if there were some, Parts of that study where people lost, a, you know, whatever, the biggest loser study that 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 showed or quote unquote showed metabolic damage. Most people listening to this aren't losing 160 pounds in a month, right? Most people listening to this aren't maybe on, you know, illegal supplements while crash dieting while starting from 500 pounds. And so if you're going to take that as, uh, uh, you know, you're going to deduce some takeaways from that and apply it to the average person trying to lose 20 pounds, eek, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like a rat study almost. It's like, I'm not saying these people aren't human, geez. I'm just saying that it's it's probably not a good correlate for, for you. Um, and 
And even then, I think uh, Alan does a good job at breaking down the study and, and showing some of the uh, downsides and uh, lack of external validity to that study. So anyway, wonderful. Moving right along here. I used to believe that being lean 24-7 was my best life. And if you listen to the story about my, or the episode about my story, um, I used to be obsessed with being lean um, to a point where it makes me, it gives me a little anxiety right now because I used to so highly identify with my body. Like, and not just my body, literally I was my abs. Like I, it was, it was who I was. And it is the saddest thing to say, but I was, my body was my identity. That's who I was. I wasn't, I, I just relied on that as like, that's who I was. And without that, I wouldn't know who I was. So I did everything in my power to maintain this super lean physique. And it got to the point where I completely crashed my libido and my energy levels. And if you listen to the episode, I give a little bit more detail into that, but it got to a point where it was really, really bad. It was pretty dark. Um, got to the point where I was high food anxiety, no social life, no libido, like literally I had nothing except my abs. And eventually I will say that, uh, what probably turned it around the most was a couple of, of, well, just one, the, my first concise bulk. And it actually really happened on the back end of, of some of this experience where I was feeling like shit and had doctors tell me, hey, you need to gain weight. Uh, and that's, what's going to be helping. And eventually after wrestling with that for a long time, like I can imagine anybody would, who was in that state, I did, I did gain weight and it was the best thing I ever did. I felt fucking unbelievable. Um, and it hit me very strongly that like your leanest body likely or almost certainly isn't your happiest life because the last few pounds to, first of all, to lose the last few pounds takes exponentially worse trade-offs. Like the leaner you get, the trade-offs get worse and worse and worse. It's because it, you have to do more work for less. And most people are going to be pretty happy not doing that. Most people's lives most people would look at those trade-offs if people really thought about and knew what it took to lose, quote, the last five pounds and get all the way shredded. Most people would stop wanting it because it's a terrible, it requires terrible trade-offs. Like your best life probably involves a couple more pounds and several hundred more calories. Like what it might cost you calorically and obviously on the, uh, you know, like a knock-on effect would be a lifestyle from a lifestyle perspective to get the, off the last few pounds. Like most people don't want to do that. You really don't. Like getting you know, kind of lean. I, we, I joke, butter your macros and I, we went live and I said something like, you know, like community pool jacked, you know, like getting to that point where you're like lean, strong, healthy, fine. But going from that point to like really, really lean takes trade-offs that are just exponentially worse. And it, and it really like for the first time, I really needed to feel it, to believe it. And I wish, I wish the knowledge that let's say that doctor told me, he's like, Hey, you're going to feel a whole lot better. Hey, you're going to, you know, uh, your libido is going to come back. Your hormones are going to go back to a good place. Your energy level is going to go back. Your sleep are going to go back. Your performance is going to come back. I wish him just telling me all that stuff made me immediately flip the switch, but I wrestled with it for a while and I didn't immediately take that advice. And it took me a long time. It took me actually doing it. It took me actually gaining 15 pounds, eventually much more. But after those first 15 pounds or so to realize that I felt amazing and that my life is you know, when we talk about like your goal weight, like a lot of people talk about goal weight, you're like you, the utopia I think of where most people want to go is when they're, where they're, they have a body that they enjoy with a lifestyle that they enjoy. And it's about those two balances because you can get a more lean physique, but it's going to take, it's going to take uh, sacrifices from a lifestyle perspective and you can have a much better lifestyle and just whatever, let's say better, like more social, like more calories, like not giving a shit about what you eat and just eating super yummy food all the time. But that might lead to a body that you don't enjoy, like 
physically inside and out. I don't just mean externally. And so what we all want is to get to a point where we have a body that we enjoy. We enjoy what it looks like and what it feels like and what it can do, how it can, how it can perform that also, you know, allows us to live a lifestyle that we enjoy. And I think that being your leanest body is going to cost exponentially worse quality of life. That's just not going to be worth it for most people. Cool. I used to believe, number six, I used to believe that I could keep growing at maintenance forever. Now, this is called body recomposition, this idea that you can keep building muscle at maintenance, lose a little bit of fat, and you can just kind of ride that off into the sunset at maintenance, and you can keep making aesthetic uh, improvements forever. Now, the truth is you can. Recomp is always going to happen, even for the most elite individuals. But it is going to happen less and less and less the more trained you get, and less and less and less the leaner you are. Um, and so I lifted for like the first six years without ever thinking about bulking, right? I just rode out these like newbie gains and then six years sounds like a long time, but I probably, and, and, and let's back up because even those six years, like those were not spent optimal training with optimal knowledge and optimal structure. Like it was still in the realm of like good enough to grow because I was probably doing, you know, too much training and, uh, too much volume and, and always a failure and all this stuff. And so it was definitely above the threshold to grow. It was probably even too much. Um, but after the, maybe about the third year, maybe like middle of college, I just stopped growing and everything I was doing felt like I was maintaining and I was training a lot and trying really hard and working hard in the gym and, you know, but I, I wasn't growing anything. I wasn't growing muscle. I wasn't getting stronger. Nothing was really happening. And I, I obviously at that point I didn't understand why, but it, it does go back to this, like trying to be lean 24 seven. I was like, I don't know why I'm not growing and I need to stay shredded all the time. And it was like, I didn't understand how contrary those two things were like, eventually recomp happens super fucking slowly. Like eventually you get to a point in your training career where if you want more muscle, it's going to require more resources. In this case, more calories. Like your body can make quote unquote newbie gains for quite some time. And if you're somebody who's like, I, you know, people always, oh, when are my newbie gains over? It's like, we don't really know, but like most people asking that question are nowhere even close to exhausting their newbie gains because it's likely years of good training. And so if you've been training for years, but it hasn't been intelligently structured hypertrophy style training, close enough to failure, good volume, exercise selection, execution, all that good stuff, you probably still have runway for recomp. And so, it, it, you know, from, from, let's say I've been training for 12 years now, how old am I? 30, Jesus Christ. So 12 years, I probably didn't grow for like years four through 10. Like I just wasn't gaining, trying to be super lean and you know, just exercising in the hopes of gaining, but never trying to sacrifice that leanness in the actual attempt to grow. And so recently, in the last two years, I did a, almost a two-year gain phase, and I probably built as much muscle in the last two years as I did in the first eight. Like, realized that at some point, recomp was happening so effing slowly that it was gonna take me more resources to gain. And here's the deal. I would stand behind, actually, I would say very strongly that I think most people, the physique that you're looking for, you probably never have to do a real intense gain phase. Now, maybe here, maybe a little bit of weight gain over the course of your training career, but a lot of people, if they just got newbie gains at maintenance, if people started picking up a weight, ate at maintenance, high protein, lifted three to five times a week, intelligent hypertrophy training, and just did that for three years, most people would have a physique they were very happy with, extremely happy with. It's at that point, if you want more, you won't keep growing at maintenance to any meaningful degree. And I just, I thought I could. And so it was, it was this, this like combination of not realizing the facts that I wouldn't grow at maintenance really 
to any appreciable agree, uh, degree anymore. And this obsession with being super lean that made for the perfect storm of just fucking twiddling my thumbs for six years, five years, four years, whatever, without actually making any meaningful gains because I was obsessed with trying to be lean and because I didn't realize that it would take not being lean to grow. Number seven, things I used to believe. What are we at, 28 minutes? All right, we'll get through these. Is that number seven, there were bad foods that would make me unhealthy. Now, the first thing that comes to mind for me a lot of times when we talk about this, like good food, bad food, I'm gonna be unhealthy if I eat this, this food is unhealthy, is that it's just flat out disrespectful to the complex nature of health and the human body to assume that eating one singular food in a nondescript amount that may have less nutrition is all of a sudden going to make you unhealthy. Your body is so fucking complex. You think having one donut is going to turn your body unhealthy. Like it's disrespectful to assume that eating one singular food in a nondescript amount, right? Having a donut is going to make you all of a sudden unhealthy. Like one, your nutrition the entirety of your nutrition won't even decide if you're healthy or not. Like health, it's definitely a part of quote health, but health is complex, so complex where you can stop worrying that a donut is all of a, all of a sudden going to make you as a person unhealthy. It's way more complex than that. Health has a mental component, an emotional component, a, a stress management component. Yeah, sure, a physical fitness and body composition component, but also a sleep component and so many other components to whether or not you are quote unquote healthy. Even the entirety of your nutrition is just one part of, part of that. You could argue it's a big part, but it is just one part. And one tiny part of your nutrition is this one food that you are talking about. Even if you eat that food often, it's still a just a part of your nutrition. Can you have, you know, are some foods more nutritious than others? Yes. Are some foods higher in certain macros or fiber than others? Yes. Are some foods higher in satiety per calorie than others? Yes. Are some foods higher in volume than others? Yes. But no single food is going to decide whether you are or are not healthy, right? It's literally disrespectful to the complex nature of health to, to assume that eating one singular food is going to decide whether you are unhealthy or healthy or not, or healthy or not. Um, and again, even the entirety of your nutrition like if you listed all the foods that you eat and there was a, a, a lot of foods on that list, like what if there was a, 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 I wrote out all the foods that I eat and you know, you looked at them and there was quite a bit of like, like less nutritious, higher calorie foods, lower in fiber and all of that stuff, stuff that you might call unhealthy. But my sleep was on point. Stress management was perfect. My body composition was great. I wasn't eating those foods in a, in a calorie surplus. My physical fitness was in check. I was maintaining like maintaining good body weight. I was in a good mental state. Like, would I be an unhealthy person? The, the answer is no. As much as we want to believe that like you must eat the perfect diet or you're gonna be unhealthy, like there are other factors. Now I would be maybe less overall healthy than if my diet had better new, overall nutrition quality. But this idea that you're gonna eat one food and it's gonna make you unhealthy is just like, is mind blowing and just shows like the misunderstanding, the lack of understanding of like the complex nature of the word health. Um, and, and again, there are foods that are more nutritious and less nutritious foods that are higher in certain macros and, and fiber than others. Maybe, you know, your protein to calorie ratio for some foods is important to you, right? Are there some foods that are higher in satiety per calorie than others? Yes. And that are those foods going to maybe lead to, you know, if you eat more of those foods, is it going to lead to maybe an overall, uh, lower spontaneous caloric reduction of the diet, which might have knock on benefits for body composition and, and, and health in that way? Yeah, sure. Totally. And are some foods that are higher in satiety per calorie also more nutritious? Yeah, that's possible, totally. But nutrition as a whole is gonna involve a lot of foods on 
you know, many ends of the spectrum. And to assume that just eating one food is going to make you unhealthy. And, and honestly, some people are like, no, it's, I'm not assuming it's going to make me unhealthy, but that food is unhealthy. It's in the low nutrition category. Okay, maybe it's in the low nutrition category. It's, it could be a drop in the bucket. It could be outweighed by a ton of the other good things that you do with your nutrition, but all the other factors. And so just let's look at this a little bit more holistically. Like to say that there are good and bad foods is intellectually lazy non, and non-contextual and shows a misunderstanding of what it means to be healthy. Moving right along here, we got eight, nine, 10. Let's get through these here. Uh, things I used to believe, number eight, walking was useless. Now, I used to hate walking. I don't know what it was. I think I was on my feet as a personal trainer for like, ungodly amount of hours that I just hated walking. Um, as I've moved into the online space, walking has like, it might be a, a overstatement here. I was gonna say it saved my life or it saves my life, but like it's the most enjoyable part of my day. And so we'll move to that in a second. But walking is literally the most underrated tool for weight management, cardiovascular health, and maybe even mental health. And I say most underrated, I'm not, I don't wanna dive too deep into like mental health. It's super obviously very multifactorial, but it's extremely accessible. Uh, and low intensity and low impact and can be done anywhere by anyone, you know, and almost anybody, anyone, it's extremely accessible. And so this idea that like walking, people are like, oh, I'm walking, I, I'm not sweating. It's not super intense. I'm not exhausted afterwards. Like, you don't, like, you, you know, you don't need to do those things to be quote unquote healthy. I know we just talked about the complex nature of health, but like, you don't need that to have a healthy heart, you, you know, like, yeah, you know, occasionally getting your heart rate up and doing some higher intensity work is, you know, probably a good thing or, or probably better than not doing it at all. But that doesn't mean like if you lift and you walk or you just walk, that's really, really, really amazing for cardiovascular health. And so it's walking is literally the most underrated tool for weight management and cardiovascular health. And like the, the, the critique of it being low intensity, that's not a, that's not a bug. That's a feature. Like it's not going to wipe you out. It's low impact and it contributes to weight management. It can contribute to weight management in a very powerful, underrated way. Like there's a lot of people who are not walking because they think it's useless. Instead, like, you know, they're, they're throwing it out because they think it's not helpful. And instead they're doing nothing. It's like the people who don't buy organic food because, or, or don't buy conventional produce because like oh, I can't afford organic. And if I can't afford organic, I'll do nothing. It's like, if I can't go for a, if I can't do some fucking hit training or go for a run, then I'm just not going to do anything. Like walk, get 10,000 steps. I don't care how you get them. Walking is, again, one of the most underrated tools for weight management, cardiovascular health. And truthfully, personally, it's been, I mean, to say it's imperative is an understatement for me and my mental health. Being outside, going for a walk, getting my body moving, uh, getting out of this chair, I would not survive without it. And so really, if you're out there and you're somebody who thinks that walking is useless, you couldn't be more wrong. Definitely, definitely, definitely do it. Cool. Number nine things I used to believe, shorter rest periods were better for hypertrophy. I think it's old folklore that it's like 60 to 90 seconds was better for hypertrophy, three to five minutes for strength, you know, 30 seconds for metabolic adaptations, endurance, whatever. Um, this is not true. I'm not gonna even spend too much time on this. Like if you want optimal hypertrophy, you should be resting long enough in between your sets for the main muscle that you're working to recover, for your synergist muscles to recover, for your cardiovascular system to recover, and for your you know, central nervous system, your mood, your, your state of readiness to recover. Because the synergist muscles shouldn't be the limiting factor. Your cardiovascular system shouldn't be the limiting factor. Your CNS shouldn't be the limiting factor. And once you've let those things recover and your main muscle that you're trying to target can become the limiting factor, you're gonna get best, best hypertrophy results. Like usually that's not 60 to 90 seconds. 
usually it's two to five minutes. Are there contexts and different training styles more advanced that can, or different protocols that can call for shorter rest times? Sure, but on the whole for best hypertrophy, on average, we're looking at somewhere between two to five minutes and, uh, and three minutes probably being that sweet spot for most people. Now, if you find that you can accomplish your synergist muscles recovering, cardiovascular system recovering, CNS recovering, and main muscles recovering in two minutes, 90 seconds for certain exercises, yeah, okay, maybe you could go for it. Maybe more isolation work with smaller muscle groups. But what I would say is if you're feeling like, man, I'm, I'm ready 60 seconds afterwards, you ain't training hard enough. Ain't, Jesus. I don't know where that came from. I don't say ain't, but anyway. Like, you aren't training hard enough if you're ready 60 seconds after your set. Now, if you're doing calf raises and 60 seconds later, you keep going, you do another set, is, is that is that gonna mean you won't get hypertrophy? No, if you're doing stiff-legged deadlifts and you tell me that 60 seconds later, you're ready to go, like, absolutely not. That means your set was not even remotely stimulative enough to cause adaptations because if you do a set of stiff leg deadlifts, I'm on the ground and I'm on the ground for four minutes, you know? Like, you should be taking those sets close enough to failure where you need more than 60 to 90 seconds. I raise a big skeptical eyebrow for people who are resting 60 seconds. Now, there are, again, protocols in place where sometimes this is something you want to do. I'll program certain exercises for maybe a more metabolic effect, but again, for a more metabolic effect, not necessarily for your bread and butter hypertrophy sets. And number 10, things I used to believe is that I needed a million dynamic warm-up mobility activation exercises before I started training and my hamstring just cramped. That is awkward. Ow. Oh, Charlie horse. I'm leaving this in here. I'm not editing this out. Oh man, I did hamstrings this morning. That is super ironic that that just happened after the rest periods of like me ranting on not working hard enough. Oh my God. Ow. Uh, okay, okay, we're good, we're good. So uh, number 10, I'm gonna keep my legs straight here, is I needed, uh, I thought I needed a million dynamic exercises, warm-up, mobility, activation stuff before I started training. These warm-ups used to take, I don't know, 30 minutes before I would start training. Here's the deal, and we get a lot of kickback, I'm sure, from people who love their mobility and love their foam rolling and love their dynamic warm-ups, and I'll, I'll even start with saying I give my clients dynamic warm-ups before we start, and usually it's because Sometimes they come in cold, it's the winter, and they don't have a treadmill, and I want them to at least do a little bit of a general warm-up, and so it's it's usually five minutes tops, five to seven minutes max. We're not talking about some long, drawn-out thing that becomes a workout in and of itself, but listen, you need enough mobility to live your normal day-to-day -day life or to compete in a sport that requires a certain amount of mobility. So if you're a powerlifter, you're going to need the, the mobility to get into you know a neutral spine to pick up the pick up the bar from the ground or to get your butt or your butt below parallel for your squat or to be able to bring the bar all the way to your chest and the bench. Like you're, those are mobility requirements for your sport. But outside of that, for everyone else who's not a power lifter or doesn't, not an Olympic weightlifter, not somebody who's competing in a sport that requires a certain range of motion, you need enough mobility to live your life. Like that's it. Like all these mobility exercises before your training so you can add a tiny inch to your squat depth might be, might not just be a really, in my opinion, poor ROI on your time. Like I'm not saying these things do nothing, but it's not a good use of the limited time that most people have. And in this context, a lot of the times that those mobility exercises you're doing before your training, a lot of times it's for legs. A lot of people have these like big hip opening drills and like a ton of, you know, ankle mobility before they start squatting and a ton of like, you know, whatever work, you know, uh, spinal extension work, all of this stuff. Now, after 20 minutes of warming up, what you've done is you've rented, you've, you've rented range of motion. I say that because you only have that range of motion temporarily. 
because you did the, that warm up. And now what might be happening, you might actually be putting yourself in a little bit of danger because now you go squat, right? And now because you're getting under the bar with a new range of motion that you don't really have command over, that you only have temporarily because of your dynamic warm up, and now you're gonna get under the bar with 225 pounds, that range of motion, that depth doesn't have the strength or stability to work on that load, right? Because you only have it temporarily right now. It's not range of motion that you have command over normally. It's range of motion you only have that you've rented now for the, the next 10 minutes because of the fucking 20 minute hip opening drills you just did. Like that might potentially be dangerous. It, it would be better for you to, you know, focus on proper technique and full range of motion within your active range with those exercises and your range of motion over time will improve a little bit. And if you're not competing in a sport that requires more range of motion, you might be able to get everything awesome out of your training without having to do 900 hip opening drills so you can get one inch of range of motion more on your squat, which you probably don't actually want to do because you don't have the stability to actually work in that range of motion. Um, again, if people want better mobility, most people should focus on lifting with proper technique and full range of motion within their active range and they will see better mobility over time. Unless you have extremely poor mobility where it's inhibiting your day-to-day -day life. Literally, like, you cannot bend over and get your keys or, you know, I, I, I almost don't even know where else it might be, um, you know, messing up your life. Like, it's probably time that you could better spend doing something else. And you, you most people are probably good getting in, like, walking into the gym, doing some specific warm-up sets for the movement that they're starting with, and then getting started. And then doing, obviously, some warm-up sets for subsequent movements. Like, the best warm-up for squatting is light squatting. The best warm-up for deadlifting is light deadlifting. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place ever for a little bit of mobility work, but if your workouts are like, if you have like a 20-minute warm-up that's giving you this temporary range of motion that you're now gonna load up a ton that you probably don't have the stability to work in, it's probably not a great idea. Plus, you don't have to deadlift from the ground. You don't have to have an ass-to-grass squat to gain muscle and be strong. And if you just lifted within your active range with good technique, tempo, execution, setup, all of that stuff, you'll probably see your range of motion, very likely, get better over time. And so these, I mean, there's movement gurus and mobility gurus that are gonna like come out of the woodwork for this. But the truth is like, you need enough mobility to live your normal life or compete in a sport that requires certain range of motion. And if you have both of those things, it's at the very least probably just not good not your best use of the limited time that the average person has to train, you're probably better off doing something that's a little bit more stimulative, maybe an extra set, right? Um, an extra exercise or just getting the fuck out of the gym a little bit sooner. And so if you're spending 20, 30 minutes on warming up mobility activation, yeah, again, it's at, it's at best time you could better spend doing something, you, you could spend doing something else or potentially, I don't wanna say dangerous, I don't wanna scare anybody, but it's range of motion that you're renting that you don't really have the strength or stability to work in, to work in. And so probably isn't a great idea unless you have to do it for your sport. All right, thanks for listening guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever wanna get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.